and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am Sarah and I am here today with Darcy, my co-host. Say hi, Darcy. Hey, what's up, guys? We are experimenting with our brand new spanking awesome high-tech new microphones. Heyo. We're a little scared. <laughs> I think the sound quality is going to be much better for you guys. Although it's going to take us probably a little playing around with them to perfect the technique a little bit. But we are very, very excited about the improvement in our sound quality for our wonderful listeners. Today, we've got a great episode planned for you guys. It is full of controversy. Right, Dars? Yeah, this is a get out your red string and your bulletin board because this one is crazy. So what would you say the name of this episode is going to be, Dars? So this is either the case of the Jennings 8 or the Jeff Davis 8. It's kind of gone by both names uh, in the press. But if you look up either one of those, you will get a bunch of articles about what we're going to talk about. All right. So I'm going to give the listeners a little bit of background knowledge about Louisiana, some interesting little facts and tidbits so that they can kind of understand what we're dealing with here, because this case happens to be in Louisiana. Now, Louisiana is unique in that most states have a series of counties that make up the state, but Louisiana does not. Instead of counties, they have parishes. Louisiana in general has a very, very distinct influence of early French and Spanish settlers in that area, and that has heavily influenced the culture, the food, and all sorts of other things within this state. It is among the country's leading oil and gas producing states. It was devastated back in 2005 by Hurricane Katrina. Some parts of it suffered significant amounts of damage. Some people are estimating that it's over $100 billion in damages, and that has really influenced a lot of Louisiana culture and business through the years. The Mississippi River borders and runs through this state, which is one of the main rivers and tributaries within the United States. Louisiana, because of the fertility of its land, was once one of the richest regions in America. They produced indigo, sugar, and cotton within the state, which helped some of the people within that state become some of the richest Americans in history as well. Between 1682 and 1763, Louisiana was a colony of the Kingdom of France. In November 1762, France handed over Louisiana and the Isle of Orleans to Spain. And then President Thomas Jefferson purchased Louisiana from Napoleon Bonaparte in 1803. This purchase encompassed about 530 million acres of territory in North America that the U.S. purchased for about 15 million. And this doubled the size of the United States. The original Louisiana territory, which was that purchase, is now divided into 13 separate states. One of those is Louisiana. So interestingly enough, Louisiana does not have an official language. English, French, Spanish, and Vietnamese are the languages that are most spoken in Louisiana. And it is also one of the wettest states in the U.S. Hawaii overall is the rainiest, and Louisiana is in there on the second or third. It is also a major inland port because of the Mississippi River that I spoke about earlier. Louisiana heads, excuse me, Louisiana leads U.S. states in the production of crayfish and shrimp. So it is a heavy seafood area as well. That is the major, major production within that state. And if you're from the South, you call them crawfish. <laughs> Louisiana is the only state in the U.S. with political subdivisions <laughs> to parishes. These are local governments that are equivalent to counties, which I spoke about earlier. The state has 64 parishes. Note that Jefferson Parish is the largest parish based on the population, while Cameron Parish is the largest in land area. Interestingly enough, the state resembles the shape of the letter L in a boot. It is also a major producer of soybeans and corn. And then a little bit about Louisiana law. Law in the state of Louisiana is based on a more diverse set of sources than the laws in the other 49 states. Private law, that is, substantive law between private sector parties, particularly contracts and torts, has a civil law character. In this particular state, it is based on French and Spanish codes and ultimately Roman law with some common law influences. Louisiana's criminal law largely rests in American common law. Louisiana is excuse me, Louisiana's administrative law, though, is generally similar to the administrative law of the U.S. federal government and other states. So that sort of puts them at a distinct 
interesting spot in U.S. history because they sort of practice a different sort of law there. Now, some people would say that their law generally sort of mimics those of other states, but Louis, uh, excuse me, but Napoleonic Code tends to be a little bit more of an older system of law. So they have some quirks and peculiarities within that particular state, and we're going to kind of get into this with this particular case that we're talking about that allow for... I don't necessarily want to say they allow for a greater degree of corruption within the state, but there's some really sketchy stuff that has happened within some parishes in that state that has allowed for this insane case that we're going to talk about today. Darcy, do you want to jump right in on this? So that's interesting. I actually didn't know that about Louisiana law. And before you said that, I kind of would have guessed that this is all more of a small town corruption situation. Um, but that is really interesting. And, and you know, maybe you'll have some insight as we get further into this. So like I said earlier, this is um, a long and complicated story. And there are quite a few murders that we're going to be talking about and quite a few names. So we'll try and describe those as best we can. But to get into it. And also, just before we get started, we will provide an outline within our show notes because this is very, very complex. Yeah. And we understand that it can be hard to kind of keep track of the, the parties that are involved. Yeah. So this takes case this case takes place in Jennings, Louisiana, which is part of Jeff Davis Parish. And this is in southwest Louisiana. So I've never been further west than New Orleans. And that a lot of people think that New Orleans is kind of the epitome of Louisiana, but that's very much not the case. Um, it's a very different culture. But the the French Cajun thing does run throughout South Louisiana. So we are going to deal with that. The other thing you need to know about Louisiana is no name is pronounced like it's spelled. So if I screw up these names, um, I did go to somebody from Louisiana for advice. But if I screwed up, you can be sure and write us and I'll give you their Twitter handle so that you can <laughs> yell at them and not me. Thanks. So... <laughs> Between 2005 and 2009, there were eight women who were murdered in Jennings. And Jennings is a town of about 10,000 people. Around this time, 2009, I think they had the lowest murder clearance rate in the country, around 7%. And so when you talk about eight people murdered in a town of 10,000, Jeff Davis Parish is bigger than 10,000, but that's where Jennings take it. That's where Jennings is. So we're just going to have to go through this in chronological order. And I apologize because it's going to get confusing, but there's just not a better way to go through this. So... So before we get started, I do want to recognize my source. So the majority of this information comes from Ethan Brown. He wrote an article in 2014 called Who Killed the Jennings Eight, or maybe it's Who Killed the Jeff Davis Eight. Like I said, these names are interchangeable, but it was on Medium.com. And then he later expanded that into a book called Murder in the Bayou that came out in 2016. And I highly recommend that book. Um, it's really good. It's a really fast read. I actually reread it. Um, in about four days to prep for this and get all my notes. So Jennings runs along the I-10 corridor between Houston and New Orleans. And this route is a common drug trafficking route. And in the early uh, late 90s and early 2000s, you had a lot of reports from this area, not just Jennings, but this entire area, Lake Charles, Jennings, Lafayette, um, a small town police confiscating drugs along the interstate, and then they would sell them in their town. So the police would stop you, take the drugs that were being trafficked between uh, Houston and New Orleans, and then they were sell the police themselves were selling the drugs in these small towns, and that was a large part of the income. So that's kind of what, where we're starting off, and there's, there's a couple names that I'm just going to go ahead and talk about now because... To explain them later every time we discuss them is just going to be too much. So the first person we're going to talk about is a man named Frankie Richard. And he is kind of a former street hustler. Um, he's described in the book as a pimp and a drug dealer. And you can go look up interviews. He kind of looks like a Cajun Charles Manson. Like he's just kind of crazy out there. <laughs> um, but he was associated with all of the victims uh, except for one. And he 
was all he's always on TV talking about this. He's happy to grant an interview and he is implicated in a lot of these cases. And he's reported to be the last person seen with at least one, if not more, of these women prior to their deaths. So he's gonna run throughout this story. And then we also have a man named Terry Guillory. And he is or was a sheriff deputy in the Jeff Davis Parish, and he also worked as uh, the parish jail warden. And there's a lot of reports from the time that he would say that he'd let people out of jail, both men and women inmates out of jail in exchange for sexual favors. And the other thing I want to mention, because I just mentioned his, his name, so there's a lot of really common last names in this area. Um, and that's just really common throughout Louisiana. It doesn't necessarily mean they're related, but if we do have people that are related, I'll I'll try and point that out when I can. All right. So you have your red string. Are you ready? Yes. To get into this? All right. Let's do it. Like I said, we're just going to start in chronological order. So April 20th, 2005, there is a raid that is conducted at the Jennings home of a local prescription pill dealer named Harvey uh, Burley. He went by the nickname Bird Dog. And this raid happened because you had an informant who was living there told the police about drug activity at the home. And the whole reason this came up that he told the police was because he discovered that bird dog was stealing money from his take. So they were trafficking drugs together and he wasn't getting his full share. So he went to the police and they had this raid during the raid. An unarmed man named Leonard crochet was killed. And the officer that shot him reported that he was going to his waist, but there's numerous reports that he was actually unarmed and was holding his hands up in the air. Not a super uncommon thing to hear about nowadays, but the interesting thing about this is that prior to his death, he had told friends that the police were harassing him because he refused to sell drugs for them. And specifically, he mentioned an incident at a Waffle House, which is something common to the South. You guys, we don't have, we didn't have it in California, and it was a super bummer. But he reported an incident at Waffle House when he ran into the police, including the one who ended up killing him at this raid. And they threatened him and said they were going to kill him. And this was prior to his death in this drug raid. So what does this have to do with the Jennings 8? Well, A witness later told police that the witnesses of this drug raid and Crochet's murder were being killed by the police to cover all of this up. So that's where we're starting, okay? Hmm. One month later, one month to the day, on May 20th, 2005, Jeff Davis Parish Sheriff Deputy Terry Guillory went to Barb Desitel's house to ask if she knew where her friend and roommate Loretta Shaisan was. Guillory said they believed she was missing, but what's interesting about this is at the time, nobody knew she was missing and no police report was filed to indicate that she was missing. Later that same morning on May 20th, a man named Jerry Jackson was fishing from a bridge over the Grand Marais Canal, um, which is on the outskirts of Jennings. And he saw what he thought was a mannequin floating in the canal. Uh, and as he got a closer look, he discovered it was a body. So he calls 911 and the police end up pulling out the body of 28-year-old Loretta Shaisam. So her body was decayed. So it had been there for a while, but it showed no evidence of injury other than a small patch of blood under her scalp. And the coroner said that he believed her cause of death was asphyxiation. And when they ran a tox screen, uh, she had cocaine, Zoloft, and Celexa in her system, and her blood alcohol level was 0.16. Dang. So Loretta struggled with drug addiction, and she was separated from her husband at the time, and she had two sons with her husband. And she'd been in and out of jail for minor drug charges and passing bad checks. And the day that she was murdered, which they believe was May 17th, so three days before she was found, Mm -hmm. she was seen at this motel called the Boudreaux Inn. Uh, And this was a location that you're going to hear about in a lot of the cases with these women. They all frequented this Boudreaux Inn, and the majority of them did work in sex work. So this was a, a common place for drug trafficking and sex work. So she was seen at the Boudreaux Inn with Jermaine Stymie Washington, Laconia Brown, and Nicole Guillory. Now, these last two names, Laconia Brown and Nicole Guillory, you're going to hear again because they end up being later victims in this Jennings 8 case. So investigators believe that Stymie suffocated Loretta at the Boudreaux Inn 
as uh, Laconia and Nicole watched. And that kind of aligns with the believed cause of death of, of asphyxiation. If you remember, I said that before she was found and identified, Deputy Terry Guillory went to her roommate's house and said that they thought she was missing. So how did he know this? How did he know her? During one of the jail stints, when Loretta was in for passing bad checks, her roommate overheard Loretta and Guillory having sex on the bottom bunk of their cell. And Loretta later admitted to having sex with the deputy, deputy regularly, both when she was in the jail and when she was not incarcerated. So that's how he is connected to her case. So she was having sex with the guards? Yeah, yeah this is a, that's a common thing for him. So he... This is this is the Terry Guillory that would let people out of jail if they'd have sex with him, essentially. Good Lord. So he apparently knew she was missing before anybody that she was staying with knew she was missing. So that's that's a little fishy to start. All right, so we're going to jump forward another month now. So June 18th, 2005, you had three friends that were frogging. I don't know what frogging is. Um, I assume it's looking for frogs in some manner, maybe to eat, unsure, don't have any idea. If you do know, please write us and let us know. But they were frogging near another canal when they saw a body floating near the bank of this canal. So this woman was African-American, but the only other identifiable feature was a pair of jean shorts she was wearing with the number 34 stitched on the leg. And detectives noted that she had a large incision on the neck and she was actually taken to the Calcasieu Parish, which is the neighboring parish uh, coroner. And that coroner confirmed that the woman died from three incisions on the front of her neck. What? Incisions? So, three incisions, yeah. So, she was identified as 30-year-old sex worker Ernestine Daniels-Patterson. And she'd been missing since at least June 16th. So, they found her two days later on June 18th. So... The last thing we know about Ernestine was that on June 16th, she was working and she had dates with two men named Byron Chad Jones and Lawrence Nixon. And after having sex with Jones, um, the rest of the night is in dispute. You kind of have a couple different stories. So according to Nixon's wife, Lucinda Kagey, she was Lucinda was cooking fried chicken and french fries that night when her husband and Jones barged in the front door carrying a massive blood-soaked garbage the bag. Fuck? Nixon told his wife that he had held Ernestine down while Jones slit her throat. And they put the garbage bag on the back porch until a white vehicle appeared outside. They loaded the bag in the car and drove off, and then Lucinda hosed down the porch. So... This story is partly corroborated by Lucinda's teenage daughter. She told investigators that Lawrence Nixon came home covered in blood and a neighbor who actually ended up being Ernestine's uncle, remember this is a very small town, uh, had given them an industrial-sized garbage bag hours earlier. Both Nixon and Byron Chad Jones denied this account. Nixon claimed Jones came to his house covered in blood, and Jones later that morning checked himself into the American Legion Hospital in Jennings at 3.04 a.m., the morning of June 17th, so this would be the morning after, the hours after Ernestine was killed, um, he checks into the hospital for a psychological evaluation. He told doctors he was living in an abandoned house and had smoked both formaldehyde and crack. What the fuck? Who now, smokes formaldehyde? Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a, like it's an easily attainable chemical, and you can smoke it, and it's cheap, and you can get really high off of it, I guess. I don't know. I have heard of it. Wow. I don't know what it does to you. Um, but so Lawrence Nixon, one of our suspects in this case is the cousin of Laconia Brown, who, if you remember, is going to be one of our later victims. And she was also the wit a witness to Loretta's murder at the Boudreaux Inn. So are you tying your red string? Because Good we're just Lord. getting started here. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to fast forward a couple months to November 28, 2005. A woman named Rosalind Bro was riding around Jennings with her friend Laconia Brown. And earlier that night, Laco uh, Rosalind had been drinking and taking muscle relaxants in Lafayette, which is about 45 minutes away from Jennings. Um, and she had passed out in the car when they were driving back. When she woke up, she was driving Lovely. to, um, they were driving to Laconia Brown's cousin's house, who is Lawrence Nixon, where she was raped by a drug dealer. 
And it turns out the drug dealer had offered Laconia nine rocks of crack to deliver Rosalind Bro to the house and had paid Lucinda Kagi $10 to use the bedroom. And because this rape took place at Nixon's house and because of his suspected role in Ernestine's murder, Rosalind got scared and she dropped all of the charges. And on uh, June, 2020, June 23, 2006, Nixon and Byron Chad Jones were indicted for second-degree murder in the homicide of Ernestine Patterson. And Laconia, who uh, went by the nickname Muggy, was actually questioned in the murder of Ernestine. And multiple sources say that Muggy witnessed Nixon and Jones murder Ernestine with a hunting knife in an abandoned house. Uh, the knife was never found, but Nixon's wife, Lucinda Kagi, told investigators about a jagged hunting knife that was in an abandoned home that she and Nixon once lived in. There's no in- indication that this lead was ever followed up on. So the police just kind of, oh, interesting, a knife in an abandoned home? where possibly one of our victims was murdered. That doesn't seem like something we need to follow up on. March 18th, 2007, a fisherman named James Aquan, I'm guessing is how you pronounce his last name, he reported a body floating in the Petit Jean Canal outside of Jennings. This victim was identified as Kristen Gary Lopez, who was last seen on March 5th and a missing persons report was filed on March 15th. They were unable to determine her cause of death due to decomposition. So this is the first time we're going to talk about Frankie Richard. So his sister Tabitha babysat Kristen when she was younger, and Richard reported that his family helped raise her because her mother was addicted to drugs and unable to care for her. Um, Kristen's mom, Melissa, believes that Frankie Richard and friend Chasey Chaisom, who is a cousin of our first victim, Loretta, know what happened to Kristen. Kristen and Tracy were both sex workers, and there was a recent investigation discovery special about this, and that was actually the first time I had heard that they were actually dating. I'd not heard that before. So Kristen and Tracy may have been dating, and they were staying with Frankie Richard just prior to Kristen's disappearance. He had checked into a budget inn. Uh, They were all doing drugs and everything, but Frankie ended up kicking Kristen out because he believed that she was stealing from him. And according to Frankie, the women later went to a house on Frank Street, um, which was a known place for drugs and sex work in the area. And Tracy wanted to leave because they'd been partying for days and the Frank Street location was not safe. So Tracy eventually left, but Kristen stayed behind. And after a week of not hearing from Kristen, she called Kristen's mother and told her Kristen was missing. Three days later, Kristen's body is found in the canal. So that is Frankie Richard's version of events. An investigation or interrogation with Tracy Chaisson, she told investigators that she, Frankie, Kristen Lopez, and Frankie's niece, Hannah Connor, and another sex worker named Connie Seiler were driving in Seiler's truck. Uh, They stopped to buy drugs and then drove to the outskirts of town to get high. And Frankie accused Kristen of stealing from him. And he dragged her out of the truck and beat her severely and then dragged her to a nearby canal where he made Hannah hold Kristen underwater until she stopped moving. Frankie then threatened to kill Tracy and all of her children if she told anyone. So that is according to Tracy Shaisom. And Frankie obviously denies involvement and claims he does know who killed her, who killed Kristen. He says that Tracy and Connie Seiler set Kristen up. Um, Some guys at this drug house on Frank Street made Tracy hold Kristen underwater. And that Tracy ended up stopping uh, cooperating with the investigators in May of 2007. She, She stops cooperating because she basically says that the investigators were harassing her. And so she came up with a story and ended up getting Frankie and Hannah arrested and charged with second-degree murder. And then she says that she felt so guilty about this that she ended up recanting her story uh, and the murder charges were dropped. So that's kind of the the story with Kristen Gary Lopez. James Aquan, who is the witness who found Kristen's body, he supposedly is an acquaintance of Frankie Richard. And a former law enforcement source of Ethan Brown's reported that he was a repeat offender. And actually, in November 2015, he was arrested and charged with seven counts of aggravated rape of an eight-year-old girl. So he's obviously not the most um, upstanding of witnesses here. So how you doing? Uh, it's, it's a mess. <laughs> it's a spider's web right it's a, now. 
Yeah, yeah. So um, May 12th, 2007, the body of Whitney Dubois is found on the side of the road on the outskirts of Jennings. Can I? She's found by a man named Interject for a second. When did this whole thing start? Like what year? 2005. Okay. God, this is recent. Yeah, it's very recent. Yeah. So May 2007, body of Whitney Dubois is found on the side of the road on the outskirts of Jennings. Um, She's found by a man named Jamie Trahan. And Jamie Trahan is actually a close associate of guess who? Frankie Richard. Oh, I knew it. So he told investigators he spotted her body from the highway from about a half mile away. Ethan Brown and one of the local like newspaper reporters kind of questioned, because that's a pretty far way away to see something and know it's a body. Right. But there's no indication anybody ever followed up on how he could have seen her, because why would you? Why do people always think it's a fucking mannequin? Like, are mannequins really just hanging out, chilling in the water in random places all over the country? Like, get fucking real. It's never a mannequin. It's never a mannequin. Okay? Never. (laughs) Mannequins don't hang out in lakes and pools and rivers. People just don't run alongside the road and throw a mannequin out. It's not a mannequin. I've never seen a body just in the middle of the road, but I've also never seen a mannequin. So it's never a mannequin. Never a mannequin. Just, okay, sorry. I had to jump in there because that that really bothers me. (laughs) Just a general rule of thumb. If you see something, it's never a mannequin. It's important information, and we need to get it out there. The talks report on Whitney. She had high levels of alcohol and drugs in her system, like many of the other victims. And the coroner deemed her cause of death undetermined with nonspecific bruises on her lower extremities. And they found no evidence of significant injuries or natural disease. So this is kind of a common theme in a lot of these. The cause of death can't be determined, usually because of decomposition. But everything you read, it's almost as if law enforcement wants you to believe they were just drug overdoses. And the people that they were with kind of just dumped their bodies. Well, that's a whole part of that. That culture around sex workers, they're throwaway. They're, they don't matter. And so the p- authorities and the police are not going to go out of their way yeah. to investigate something more thoroughly on someone who's a sex worker. And it's getting better, but like in that period of time, just absolutely right. and, not. And, it, it, was a th- it wasn't a thing. Exactly. And most of these women were known to law enforcement with drug charges and, and prostitution charges and they would absolutely fall into that category of what probably heard um the less dead and that's actually a term created by steve and kim egger they're criminal justice researchers there was an anonymous task force witness who said that he jamie trehan and an unidentified woman who was jamie trehan's girlfriend were partying at the budget inn and late that evening because that's you know where you party the the budget inn that's the party spot I'm sure. Look, if you look up Jennings, <laughs> I think there's like three places where you can go to party in this kind of context. So, and the budget inn is one. <laughs> the budget inn is one of them. Okay, sorry. They're partying at the budget inn, and late that evening, Trahan leaves the motel, but he doesn't tell anybody where he's going. And he comes back at around 5:15. The witness then reports that he and Trahan drove from the budget inn to the outskirts of Jennings, where Whitney's body was laying in the middle of the road. And here's another interesting one, because Trahan tried to convince the witness that it was a deer in the middle of the road. What? It's not a deer, and it's not a mannequin. It could be a deer. I had a neighbor that would kill deer when I was little and hang it in his backyard. It was really traumatic. All right, so he tries to convince this witness that it's a deer, uh, so he he doesn't pull over. He's like, no, that's a deer. That's just nothing. We don't need to pull over for that crumpled deer that looks suspiciously like a woman. So they go back to the hotel, and Trahan and his girlfriend took a shower, then the witness reported that Trahan returned to where Whitney's body had been dumped, and that's when he called the police. So in this investigation discovery special they did, they made it sound like Trahan had drugs on him when he first saw Whitney's body, and that's why he didn't call the police, because he didn't want to get caught with drugs on him, which is believable, sure, but based on witness interviews and public records, this is what Ethan Brown actually thinks happened. He thinks that 
Whitney and Frankie were doing drugs on the outskirts of, of Jennings in his tr- in Frankie's truck. And around 3 a.m., they got into a fight, and Frankie ends up strangling her inside the truck. So he loads her into a 55-gallon drum filled with formaldehyde, and he and Trahan transported her body in a van. And this is when Trahan, quote-unquote, later discovered Whitney's body. And then uh, witnesses later observed Frankie washing a van in the hours after her body was discovered. And this is kind of a common thing. There's a car wash slash dry cleaners in town, and there's a lot of cars being washed after bodies are found that are never checked up on. And that's one of the first signs of someone that's killed a body is they look for signs that either the house or the car have recently been detailed, deep cleaned, washed, shampooed, any of that. I have, this is kind of a sidebar, but one of my friends uh, who's in my class was a foreman on a jury, a murder case in New Orleans. And they saw, like, they believe the the victim was killed in, like, the bathroom of this house. And when they saw pictures of the house, like, the house was disgusting. It was like hoarders live there. Except for the bathroom was, like, the most spotless bathroom you've ever seen. Yeah. There have been a few cases like that. You know that shit happened there if the bathroom is the only spotless room. Exactly. She said that rest of the house was, like, disgusting. Somebody got caught up in the bathtub. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Sorry. So... So, so that's okay. So that's what Ethan Brown and things happened based on witness interviews that he conducted and the public records that he had, which is, and this is actually partly corroborated by someone who came forward in 2009 to say that he and Frankie were in a drug rehab program together. And during this time, Frankie actually confessed to killing Whitney and two other girls with Jamie Trahan. And he admitted to using a 55-gallon drum containing chemicals. And this drum was something that he bought. He said he bought it from, like, a local corner because it had formaldehyde and they would lace their drugs with it. But uh, this is obviously something that the 55-gallon drum that he's admitted buying and using and keeping behind his mom's house. And then there's reports that he loaded uh, Whitney's body in this 55-gallon drum. So that's the story of Whitney Dubois. Just two days later, on May 14th, 2007, 35-year-old Elizabeth Dawn Clemens claims that she was raped by a man named Eugene Ivory and Frankie Richard. And after the rape, Frankie warned her. This guy's involved in fucking everything. Oh, dude, I'm telling you. he, Yeah, he's all over this case. So... After the rape, Frankie warned her, quote, if you tell anyone, bitch, you will end up like the others. So Clemens called the police and she provided a statement and then was taken to a hospital and a rape kit was performed. And the rape kit ended up showing DNA belonging to Eugene Ivory. And Ivory and Frankie were both charged with rape. And while Frankie, this is this is when he and his niece, Hannah Connor, were charged with a second-degree murder of Kristen Lopez as well. He's already in jail on this rape charge. So because of all of the things that Frankie Richard is involved in and because of everything that's going on, Elizabeth Clemens gets freaked out, and she asks to drop the rape charges. Um, and that happens in the summer of 2007. So July 25th, 2007. You remember the drug raid at Harvey Burley's house? Mm-hmm. Harvey is stabbed to death in July of 2007. Surprise, surprise. So just prior to his death, he told friends that he was pursuing leads on the murders of the women. And a reporter for the Jennings Daily News, Scott Lewis, said, quote, It was just one murder after another, and suddenly there were different strands connecting all of them. These people all knew each other, and now we were hearing all the people killed knew Bird Dog. Every single one of these victims had been through Bird Dog's living room. He knew all of them. This was far beyond one crazy person committing these murders. So still, remember, we have only four of these Jennings eight murders, but we have, we're up to, what, six murders now and two sexual assaults that have happened in this case so far. So... In December 2007, a Jennings Police Department sergeant named Jesse Ewing takes recorded statements from two female inmates who say that there are high-ranking officers involved in the killings. And everything I read, this Jesse Ewing guy is 
pretty upstanding. He's he's one of the good guys. He doesn't seem to be caught up in the corruption and all this. So he recorded the statements on tape and on paper, obviously, and the tapes have never actually been made public, but supposedly they offer specific information on the murders of Kristen Lopez and Whitney, victims three and four. And they also talk about law enforcement officers' efforts to cover up Frankie Richard's involvement in at least one of these murders. So they also claim in these tapes that Jeff Davis Parish investigator Warren Gary worked with Frankie Richard to destroy physical evidence from the truck that was used to transport Kristen Gary Lopez's body. And when Jesse Ewing came forward with this information, he got charged with malfeasance and fired. And Warren Gary who supposedly helped cover up some of this physical evidence, was promoted to run the evidence room at the sheriff's office at Jeff Davis Parish. So that takes us to the end of 2007. On May 29th of 2008, the body of Laconia Muggy Brown is found on a dirt road outside of Jennings. She had told friends just prior to her death, told friends and family that she was deeply traumatized by witnessing Ernestine Patterson, that's victim number two, her murder in 2005. And like many of the other women we're going to be talking about coming moving forward, she worked as an informant for both Jennings PD and the Jeff Davis Parish Sheriff's Office. Now, remember, Muggy was charged with rape and helping with helping with the rape of, of Rosalind Bro. And she was also the cousin of Lawrence Nixon, who was a suspect in Ernestine's murder. Okay, so let's take a step back for a moment and interject that difference in law again. Okay. So one of the reasons that people may seem like they're getting away with things in this particular area in criminal law in Louisiana that they don't in other states or that they might not be able to get away with in other states is because of that system of law there where the judges are encouraged to interpret and make a ruling on a case-by-case basis rather than based upon the law and what has happened previously. So they're sort of encouraged to make an... So there's no, like, precedent. Yeah, they're encouraged to make their own interpretations and to judge based upon the case that they're ruling on and the facts surrounding that case, which leaves a lot more openings for things to slide through the cracks or for people to not get sufficient sentences that are on par with or in line with the laws in other states. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And that when you combine that with like the good old boy network of small town cities in the South, when you probably know the judges and all of that and have all these like business connections, it's just a breeding ground for for corruption. And they basically call it a quote unquote civilian civilian tradition that sort of creates Hmm. Louisiana law. So. For example, while most states tend to rule based on precedent, other cases and law that has developed through the history of the court system, judges in Louisiana are encouraged to rule based on their own interpretation of the law that exists that, in Louisiana. That's crazy. Wow. Anyway, that's sorry. Go ahead. That's super wild. No, that's good because that does... That does actually add like a lot of information to this. So in the spring of 2008, Muggy had told her sister she was working with a cop on a murder case. And we don't know what this was, but obviously it's believed to be one of these Jennings eight murders, which were at the time four murders. And on Memorial Day weekend, she went to a barbecue at her grandmother's house. And at one point, her grandmother says she went to her grandma's bedroom, got on her knees and said, I love you. There's nothing I wouldn't do for you. And my son, she had a son. And then she packed a bag and said she was going to do laundry, which was weird because there was a washer and dryer at the house. And a few days later, Muggy called her grandma from a blocked number and said, I'm okay. Don't tell my boyfriend I called. Now, her boyfriend was Stymie Washington, who, if you remember, is believed to have killed our first victim, Loretta Shison. So unknown to her family, Muggy actually had bought a bus ticket to Washington, D.C., but obviously she didn't make it, and they believe she was murdered by the person who was actually driving her to the bus station. So her body was... So she was trying to get the fuck out. Yeah, she, she supposedly she knew a lot about what was going on, and felt that she couldn't come forward with it because of all of the other all the police corruption and she just needed to leave town. So her body was actually discovered by the same Jennings police 
uh, police department lieutenant who ran her as an informant. His name is Michael Janice. And she was found fully clothed. Her cause of death was multiple incised wounds to the head and neck. She had three cuts behind her right ear and approximately seven cuts across the front of her neck. Seven cuts. Like, that's just... I don't understand that. Like, you slit the neck. Why do you need seven cuts? I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, it's clearly something that's more than just to kill her. You know what I mean? So... It's overkill, which usually happens when you when the victim knows the person who did exactly. the kill. So random strangers don't have that kind of right. Overkill. And and you also don't want to stay at a crime scene too long because you don't want to risk getting caught. And the more time you spend there, the more likely you are to get caught. So this is obviously somebody who feels like exactly. they are safe to stay at this crime scene long enough to do this to somebody. Which makes me believe even more that it's law enforcement related, because if it's a law enforcement officer or somebody who's involved with law enforcement, whether it be by corruption, bribery, whatever, then they're going to feel confident enough to stay for a longer right. period of time. But go ahead. Exactly. So... Muggy's family is told that Janice is the one who is going to be investigating her murder and that they're not allowed to view her body. And the coroner actually went to Brown's family and said that he believed that law enforcement were involved in her murder, but he didn't provide any names out of fear of retribution. And he also told the family he believed he was being followed by deputies from the Jeff Davis Parish Sheriff's Department. So we're going to fast forward about four or five months now. So September 11th, 2008. The body of victim number six, Crystal Benoit Zeno, is found in the woods outside of Jennings. In July 2008, she was at a party in Jennings, and she was intoxicated and talking loudly about the murders. Her friend felt she was putting herself in, self in danger, so he kind of walks her outside, and they get in his truck. Unbeknownst to them, they're followed out of this party by a man named Kenneth Patrick Drake, who followed them to the truck with a metal pipe. And he swung it at the driver's side window, which broke the window, and he ended up hitting Crystal in the head. Crystal fled inside the house and ends up calling Deputy Terry Guillory, who we've talked about prior. He's the one who was releasing inmates from jail in exchange for sexual favors. And she was working for Terry Guillory as an informant. And after this attack, Crystal sought refuge with Frankie Richard, and she stayed with him for about a month. Oh, God. Yeah. Bad move. (laughs) You're going to end up dead if you're hanging out with Frankie Richard. Right. So remember, so this happened, this this party and her attack happened in July. She stays with Frankie Richard for about a month. And she so that puts her in mid mid August and she disappeared at the end of August. So her mom later reported that she talked about the murders a lot and that she feared becoming the next victim. And she knew many 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 of the of the women who had been murdered before so here we have an author's theory again this is based on witness statements and public record information so august 23rd ethan brown believes that crystal was at her room at her roommate and friend Brittany gary's 17th birthday and that she claimed to know who murdered muggy who is victim number five On August 29th, Crystal met a client at the Budget Inn. She was also a sex worker. And then she walked to a gas station where she calls Terry Guillory from a payphone. And she's picked up by a group of Frankie Richard's associates in a white truck. They drove her out into the country where they strangled and dumped her body. And when they were walking back to the truck, they ran into a man named Russell Carrier, which is how we know this information. He was a mechanic who worked for Frankie and his friends, and he was able to identify all of the men because he knew them well. So all of these men that that supposedly killed and and dumped Crystal's body. So he ID'd the group as Eugene Ivory, whose name we've heard before. He was accused with Frankie Richard of raping Elizabeth Clemens, a man named Tyson Mouton. He is also a suspect in Kristen Lopez's murder, and he is also accused of helping to dispose of Muggy's body and a man named Ricardo Tiger Williams, who is the man who they believe was driving Muggy Brown to the bus station. And he, they believe that he is the one who actually killed her in his truck. So carrier Russell carrier calls this in that he spotted these men, but there is no evidence that any of this was investigated further. We've heard that before too. So, Crystal's body was discovered almost two weeks after her disappearance by a group of hunters. 
Lovely. Her body was discovered two weeks after her disappearance by a group of hunters, and Terry Guillory, Sheriff's Deputy Terry Guillory, went to Crystal's mother's home to deliver the news, saying, They found the body, and it's Crystal's body. I didn't kill her, but I know that it's her. And when Crystal's mom asked how he could ID her given all of the decomp- decomposition, because this is summer in South Louisiana. It's really hot. It's really humid. So decomposition happens really fast. So when asked how he could identify her, Terry Guillory said that she had a tattoo on an intimate area of her body. And when her mom said, how would you know that if you hadn't seen it before? The only people who have seen that would be people who have slept with her. Whoa. He got up and he left the, the residence. And it took two months for officials to officially identify her body. So Terry Guillory went to her mom's home and said, this is her. I know that this is her. But it took two months before she was officially identified. All right. So a couple months after this, November 15th, 2008, the body of Brittany Geary is found in a field outside of Jennings. Now, this is Kristen Gary Lopez's cousin, and she, at the time, was living with Crystal Benoit Zeno. So she is directly related to two of our previous victims. She was also 17, so as soon as she disappeared, it became news immediately because she was a minor. So whereas most of the women, it wasn't reported, they were missing in the news because she was only 17, this was publicly reported. And after Crystal's murder back in September, Brittany became heavily addicted to crack cocaine, and she told her sister that she was petrified of the police. And on one afternoon, Brittany walked to Whitney Dubois' niece's house and started screaming in the front yard that Frankie Richard had murdered Whitney. And on November 2nd, this is the last known spotting uh, sighting of Brittany. She was spotted on surveillance leaving a family dollar store at about 6.30 p.m. She was buying minutes for her phone because this is 2008, and that's back when you had to actually buy minutes for your phone. Brittany, her family went to the police to ask them to organize a search group, but the sheriff said that the circumstances of her disappearance didn't justify sheriff office resources, which doesn't make any kind of sense because she's a minor. I don't care what the circumstances of somebody dis- of a minor disappearing are. There's no reason you shouldn't uh, like have law enforcement organizing a search. That just uh, it's a minor. I don't care who you are, but that's my little soapbox. So Brittany's uncle actually ended up organizing a search group himself. And volunteers searched for about two weeks. And on November 15th, 2008, volunteer Jimmy LeBlanc discovered Brittany's remains on the side of the road, and she was submerged in a swamp. And interestingly, Jimmy LeBlanc joined the search for the first time that morning, and he's the one who found her body. I don't have any further information on that. It's just a very interesting fact. Brittany had been dead for a few weeks by the time she was found. The official official cause of death was undetermined, but it was believed to be asphyxia. And she did have cocaine in her system. So this is another common thread, death by asphyxia and drugs in her system. Yeah, I'm sure she was nice and compliant after she was all drugged up. Right. So inexplicably, the sheriff was hesitant to connect her murder to the other ones, saying... I'm not a fool to believe that they are not connected, but I don't have the evidence to connect it, which is just, (laughs) remember, this is a town of 10,000 people. (laughs) She lived with the victim they just found a few months earlier and is a cousin of the third victim. And you're just like, I don't know if they're connected. So among other connections, though, Brittany's mother had taken care of Frankie Richard's brother while he recovered from colon cancer. And when Brittany's mom distributed the missing persons flyers around town about her daughter, she actually listed the phone number belonging to Hannah Connor. Now, you remember that Hannah Connor is Frankie Richard's niece, and she was arrested and charged with the second-degree murder of Kristen Gary Lopez, who is Brittany's cousin. But like we talked about before, those charges were dropped when Tracy Shison stopped cooperating. And witnesses later said that Kristen's mother actually, not Kristen, I'm sorry, Brittany's mother actually prostituted Brittany out and that the mother and Frankie Richard were criminal associates. So there's a lot of other connections with this one too. So again, here we have an author theory based on witness statements and public records. After leaving the family dollar, so that's where she was last seen, it's about 630 
The author believes that Brittany was picked up by Deputy Danny Barry for sex. Now, it's been reported that he and his wife were regular customers of many of the victims. And he and his wife would spike the drinks of these girls and then take them back to their house for sex. And they had a room with chains hanging from the ceiling and you couldn't see in or out of the room. And it's also been reported that he had a room covered in like plastic tarp stuff. So like Dexter style. Yeah. So so what, I don't know what they were doing there. If it wasn't murder, it was something super fucked up, but at least nine of the task force witnesses name has him as a suspect in these Jeff Davis eight or Jennings eight murders. So this is the first time his name actually comes up because this is the first time we think that, that he was involved in one of these, but he has been named by other witnesses in some of the other murders. So the author believes that Brittany and Danny did drugs and had sex and partied in his home for about two days. And on November 4th, he strangled her and dumped her body where it was later found in that kind of swampy area on the side of the road. Two witnesses said that on November 9th, they actually saw a truck with two men on the side of the road where her remains were found. Remember, that's November 9th, and she's not found until November 15th. So about a week before she was found. And one of the men standing on the side of the road, witnesses said they believed were the, they believed the men were actually law enforcement. And another witness told task force investigators that Frankie Richard helped Danny Barry murder Brittany and that Frankie actually confessed to the witness that Brittany knew too much and that's why she was murdered. And this witness said that Frankie confessed to murdering four of the victims now. So this is Brittany, Crystal, Whitney, and Kristen. And the witness was able to corroborate details of Whitney's murder. Remember, this is the one with the 55-gallon drug uh, drum of formaldehyde. In interviews from 2000... So the, the drums of formaldehyde, people are smoking formaldehyde. It's just getting it's, crazy. Yeah. So in 2011, Richard, Frankie Richard actually identifies Danny Berry as a prime suspect, saying, quote, all these girls or most of these girls was found within a three-mile radius of Danny Berry's house. Since he'd been dead, nobody died. All these motherfuckers on the sheriff's department are some crooked sons of bitches. And Danny Berry died of cancer in 2010. So... We don't have anything further on him, but that isn't, you know, he has a point. All, the murder stopped in 2009, or the Jeff Davis 8 murder stopped in 2009. So in December, eight, December of 2008, Sheriff Ricky Edwards holds a press conference saying that he couldn't connect the killings. <laughs> the facts that we currently have do not allow me at this time to say with certainty that these cases are all linked. But then he spent the rest of the press conference discussing the serial killer theory, saying that he believes that they are all victims of a common killer, and he started listing off characteristics of serial killers. Right, right. So, and if you watch the Investigation Discovery special, they do, it's a two-part special, and in the first part, they do make it sound like these are all serial victims of of one serial killer. How convenient. And then you get into this— and you're, it's just, it's an impossibility that this is one serial killer. It's just, it's just not. It's, all of these victims knew each other. And that when they started talking about knowing who killed the other women, they end up dying. And it's just, it's just not a serial killer. But anyway, so later on in December 2008, Frankie Richard called an investigator with the Louisiana State Police Department who had joined the task force. And at this time, Frankie Richard was in rehab about 200 miles from Jeff Davis Parish. So he was drying out, I guess you'd say. So he told him, he told, Frankie Richard told the state investigator that another rehab patient named Michael Prudhomme had cleaned the truck that investigators believed was used to dispose of Kristen Lopez's body. And this truck was later bought by police officer Warren Gary who you remember is the one who supposedly helped Frankie Richard destroy physical evidence and was uh, promoted to run the evidence room. So he buys a truck from an inmate that was believed to carry the body of Kristen Lopez. And one month later, he ends up turning around and selling the body. Sell- <laughs> he didn't sell the body. He ends up turning around and selling <laughs> That's a the truck. That's twist I wasn't expecting. <laughs> I'm getting delirious with all of this. 
he ends up selling the truck for twice as much as he bought it for. So that's definitely on the up and up. And this Michael Prudhomme guy who is in rehab with Frankie Richard is the victim, is the boyfriend of our next victim, number eight, Nicole Guillory. And he listed, he also listed a number of corrupt law enforcement officers who he alleged paid for sex with the victims and were also involved in their murders. So in May 2009, there's a series of home burglaries in Jennings, and among the stolen items were a Colt 380 and two diamond rings. And all of this was later sold at a pawn shop. And Terry Guillory's wife, named Paula Guillory, headed this investigation. And the burglars were caught on surveillance at the pawn shop, and one of the burglars was Michael Prudhomme from our rehab story. And during the interrogation, Prudhomme admitted to his association with Frankie Richard and Brittany Gary's mother, and that he had been staying at the home where most of the victims had worked. And I believe this is that Frank Street home. So after this, the police conduct a raid on Frankie Richard's house related to the burglaries, and Frankie and his mom were taken into custody. Paula Guillory was part of this raid, and she turned over 60 evidence bags to the evidence custodian, Warren Gary. Shockingly, as Gary inventoried the evidence, he noted that cash was missing from four of the bags. And when he reported this, this ended up resulting in Paula's suspension. So a couple months after this, Paula and Terry Guillory are observed by a private investigator at the home of Frankie Richard. And they have also been seen in Jennings at a home in Jennings frequented by many of the victims. So after he, after she raids Frankie Richard's house, two months later, they're seen at the home with him. A month later, after an investigation in August of 2009, Paula Guillory is fired and the case against Frankie Richard collapses. This is for the third time. So we have the burglaries, that case collapsed. You have the Kristen Gary Lopez murder case, that case collapsed. And the Elizabeth Clemens case, that case collapsed. That same month, August 19th, 2009, the body of Nicole Guillory is found near I-10 in Acadia Parish. She is actually the only victim who is found outside of Jeff Davis Parish. So in, back in 2005, Nicole told friends and family that she witnessed Loretta Chason, our victim number one, being murdered by Muggy's boyfriend, Stymie, at the Boudreaux Inn. And her boyfriend at the time that she was murdered was named Michael Prudhomme. And he told investigators that Terry Guillory offered to release him from jail in exchange for sex with Nicole. And Nicole had previously said she had sex with Terry so she would so he, that he would let her out of jail. Now, remember how I told you a lot of these names are similar and that doesn't mean that they're actually related? Nicole and Terry Guillory are related. They're distant cousins. And he was having sex with her in exchange for letting her out of jail on multiple occasions. Like many of our other victims, Nicole worked as an informant and is a really kind of sad story for her. In 2009, she told her mother not to worry about baking a birthday cake because she doubted she'd be alive to blow out the candles. And she put her child, her four children with relatives, but she refused to name names. And her mom believes that this is because she knew that law enforcement was involved. So in mid-August of 2009, Nicole disappeared. And she was last seen getting into a white van with Ernestine Patterson's father, who Ernestine is our victim number two. And he later said that he picked up Nicole and drove her around for about 20 minutes, then dropped her off at the same car wash that was used to clean the truck that Warren Gary bought. And that was possibly used to transport Kristen Gary Lopez as well. So Nicole's body was later found on the side of an overpass, like I said, outside on uh, off of I-10 outside Jeff Davis Parish. There was no evidence of external injury, and traces of cocaine and tramadol were found in her system. Her official cause of death is unknown. It's suspected to be asphyxia. A couple months after this, in response to all of the rumors going around town, the sheriff called a press conference to announce that they believed the murders were committed by a common offender and that the reward was increased from 35000 to 85000 for information that led to a prosecution. He also ordered all investigators working on the case to be swapped for, for DNA because there's a lot of talk that law enforcement is involved in this. But the results of these DNA tests were never made public. So that takes us to the end of our Jennings 8 victims. 
But the murders don't stop there. So in early 2010, there were a lot of shootings in South Jennings, uh, and this involved a lot of people in the drug scene. And they were many of the victims were street hustlers that were involved in the drug trade, and they were associates of the victims. And as a result of these killings, you had a lot of witnesses that stopped cooperating with the task force investigating the Jennings Eight murders. In October of 2010. Jennings detectives show up to the house of Barb Desitel to tell her that her brother committed suicide. This is important because her brother is Russell Carrier, who was the witness to the dumping of Crystal Benoit Zeno's remains. So he was supposedly struck and killed by a train. The Jennings police chief later told media that, for whatever reason, Carrier had simply lain down on the tracks and was run over, which is not a thing. Um, it's been reported that Tracy Chason had informed him, uh, Jenny's detective that Tyson Mouton had beaten Russell Carrier with a baseball bat and forced him onto the tracks. And Tyson Mouton was one of the men that Carrier had identified as disposing of Crystal's body. The former boyfriend of Nicole Guillory and Brittany Gary was a drug dealer named David Desitel. He was murdered in jul- July of 2011. And as a result of all of this, the sheriff announced in May of 2011 that he was not going to seek re-election. And there is a new sheriff, and it's the same sheriff. I did double-check this. So the sheriff is now a man named Ivy Woods. He campaigned on transparency and solving this case. And since taking office, he's done exactly nothing to help move this case forward. So July 31 of 2014 is when the Medium.com article is published. And that is the same day that the body of 27-year-old Lacey Fontenot is found in a ditch in Lake Arthur. And this is west of Jennings. And the police don't think this is, in, this is connected to the Jennings 8 case. But she did have connections to Jeff Davis Parish drug and sex trade. She dated the father of Whitney Dubois' daughter. And she also dated Loretta Chason's brother-in-law. And one of the last people to see Lacey Fontenot alive was Eugene Ivory, who was suspected in Crystal Benoit Zeno's murder and also in the rape of Elizabeth Clemens. And Fontenot's family believes that the timing of her murder and the article was not a coincidence and, that, and they implicated law enforcement. So that's kind of the end of all of the murders and all of these ties together. But I do have one more thing I just want to very briefly mention. At the beginning, I talked about the Boudreaux Inn and how this is connected. A lot of the women worked there and frequented there for sex work. And this is actually owned by a man named Martin Guillory. And he, at the time it was owned, it's now been closed. But he was a field representative for a congressman for the state of Louisiana named Charles Bustani. And Bustani was a representative in the 7th Congressional District until he stepped down on January 3rd of 2017. So he was a member of Congress very recently. And he has many political connections. He's actually related to Ted Kennedy's widow, Vicki. And he, in the House of Representatives, he was the chair of the Tax Policy Subcommittee of Ways and Means. So, so that is Charles Bustani and his field representative, Martin Guillory, who worked for him, was a co-owner of the Boudreaux Inn. And supposedly, Martin Guillory and his business partner, Toby Ledger, were at the Boudreaux Inn almost weekly when they owned it. And there have been rumors that Charles Bustani was a client of many, if not all, of these Jeff Davis 8 victims. And he actually, when the book came out in 2006, this Murder in the Bayou book, he actually sued Ethan Brown for, I believe, for defamation because he was running for Senate in 2016. And he lost his election and subsequently dropped his lawsuit. And that's kind of the end of, of that. So we don't know, but this is one of those things that if you wanted to see it that way, it could definitely go all the way to the top. I wouldn't be surprised, to be honest. And that is the story of the Jennings Eight. Wow, that was a lot to wrap our minds around. That's a whole lot. And like I said, we'll post the timeline. If people want to learn more about this, what do you recommend? There's a good kind of, it's, it's a long read article on medium.com called who killed the Je- Jeff Davis eight or who killed the Jennings eight. I can't remember off the top of my head. 
That's just, that's kind of a, a long read article. It'll take you about 30 minutes to read it. And if you want to read an actual book about it, which I do highly recommend, look at Ethan Brown's book, Murder in the Bayou. And there was also very recently uh, The Investigation Discovery, but they leave a lot of this information out, which is why ours is so long and a little bit dry, perhaps. But there's just so much. You can't get into a lot of the details on it. Right. Well, we're going to wrap the show up for today since we're well over an hour, but this is the point where we say so long, farewell, goodbye. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Darcy, social media. We are at the BFD Podcast on the Twitters and the Instagrams. And for real, for real, for real, it would really help us out if you guys would rate us on Apple Podcasts because that's how we get like numbers and that's how they push us and, and help more people find us. You can also rate us on any of the other um, subscription platforms that also helps us. Um, but primarily Apple Podcasts is, is very, very helpful for us. And it also gauges um, how popular or interesting our topics are and lets us know where we need to go for future episodes in order to get you guys the content that you want to hear about. If you have any emails, suggestions, comments, clarifications, corrections, any of that, please send us an email at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. Please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stuff. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye. Goodbye.